Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks. Book Riot listeners can download a free audiobook on us and get an extended free trial of the service by going to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 41, and we're recording on Thursday, February 20th. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and back this week is our friend, our colleague, Amanda Nelson. Amanda, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. Um, You caught us in a big follow-up week. There's like a lot of news about things we've been following. Um, Good. All the smart stuff has been said. Yeah, I mean, not really. (laughs) uh, Anyway, you have – I think we're both – more interested in the second one than this first one. So let me just get this out of the way. Um, we've been talking over uh, infinity months, it feels like, about Harper Lee suing all of Alabama about to get a mockingbird. <laughs> all of it, the whole state. Yeah, uh, specifically Monroeville uh, Museum that is basically a To Kill a Mockingbird Museum. And she had her estate had sued them over licensing and names and you're using my stuff and making money and not giving any of it. I, I think that's the legal. Uh, that was the brief that was filed. And it's over. They settled. It is. We don't know what the terms are. Um, the museum is still open, so it didn't get shut down. But I know that they had to change the name, their website, which was tokillamockingbird.org, which did seem a little... <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a little overkill. <laughs> a little infringy, uh, I think it feels <laughs> like to me. Um, but, you know, they're still selling a bunch of Harper Lee-related goods. So I'm guessing that they agreed to change their website and give her some percentage, and she agreed not to make their world end. Does that sound about right? Is that what your gut is telling you? Do you have any feelings about this? Yeah, I'm sure that's it. Or maybe, yeah, unless she's, I don't know, walking down to the museum and shaking her fist at them. On the- <laughs> I doubt that's what's happening. Well, it seems like her lawyers are being reasonable. Yeah, from what we've heard about Harper Lee, I'm not sure she's much in condition to be walking around shaking her fist at shaking. things. Yeah, exactly. Um, but at least it's over, uh, as bad as it was. So I- I'm glad to hear about that. So hopefully that's the end of Harper Lee lawsuit news, Yeah, um, which has been a running sub-theme of the show. Um, you want to walk us through this second one? I know you have feelings and thoughts. I have about- so many feelings about James Patterson, which is a sentence I don't think I've ever said before <laughs> in my entire life. I know, life. right? Um, what, what's going on? So I, uh, about five months ago, I guess, James Patterson. Sure, that's that- fine. It's a podcast. We can be rightish. Yeah. Uh, ish? Yeah. Uh, well, it was last year. Oh, I'm yeah, right okay. That's that, good. At good. least in that way. Um, he said he was going to give a million dollars in grants to independent bookstores across the country. And the only requirements for getting the grants was that they had to have a uh, children's section and that they had to be viable, whatever that means. And so this week he's started giving out the debt, making it rain like he do. <laughs> Uh, he gave out $267,000, I think, yep. to um, bookstores across the country, 54 of them, as this blurb in front of me says. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I have, I have thoughts about that. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, – so I guess if I did the math real quick, that's about hmm, 
40,000 per store. Is that right? No, 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 4,000 no. per store, yeah, 4,000 yeah. per store. Yeah. Uh, uh, dropped the zero there. So he still, and he still has 750K to go, essentially. Um, Hmm. <laughs> Where should we start with our thinks? Our thinks about <laughs> our this. Our thinks, our thinky bits. Um, you said on Twitter today that there's some there's something about that that bothers. I'm not sure something that bothers me. It's just a little weird to some degree to think of giving grants to businesses. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing. It just feels a little strange. Um, where does this, the feeling of strangeness come in for you here? Uh, there are two things about this that weird me out. I mean, I think it's great. Give money to bookstores. I love independent bookstores and I want them to survive. But treating them like charities is a little weird to me. And I don't think that's necessarily his intention. Yeah. Because he's giving their grants and he's giving them to bookstores that are already doing well. So it's not like he's trying to prop up a failing store. Mm-hmm. But the language that he's using is save the bookstores to save reading in America, essentially. And that's the second thing that bothers me is that connection between the future of independent bookstores being the future of books in America. I don't think those two things are as connected as James Patterson necessarily thinks they are. Right. Uh, so those yeah. are the two things that are like, well, I mean, good on you. But Sure. I mean, it's, it's I mean, what are we going to say? Like, don't right. do this, don't James do Patterson? Well. I guess the thing that strikes me immediately is, boy, he has some cash money. Yeah, like, he's the real. richest author running around out there. So it's his money. Um, better this than a billion other things you could do with a million dollars. Let's just get that out of the way. Um, but it does kind of further the narrative of indie bookstores are in distress and need sort of a noblesse oblige from rich people in publishing to help make them work, which I don't think we really like. I'm not even sure that's really true. And especially since one of the criteria was that they needed to be viable. Yeah. I mean, I guess he wants to keep them viable or expand what they do. Um, I, I'm not really sure. Well, I looked that. into a couple of the stores that got the money, and oh, it seems nice. like what they're doing, a lot of them are using it to do their established charitable things that they have in store. So, mm. like, some of them give books to schools and stuff like that. So, okay. so a, a lot of it seems to not really have anything to do with independent book selling, huh. the business of it at all, necessarily. Um, right. But then other stores are like, we're going to get a new roof, you know, so. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> sure. And that seems uh, reasonable for sure. Right. Um, I think maybe Rebecca and I talked at one point about, I guess it was maybe Alec Baldwin make a huge donation to uh, uh, a library out on Long Island. Mm-hmm. And we were just sort of thinking about the strategeriness of where <laughs> to give money, where you to give money. And the thing that I keep coming back to is libraries. Right. Um do we know that independent bookstores are more important to reading as we know it than libraries? I, I'm not sure about that answer. I, I'm just not sure. I'd, I'd sure love him to see him spend some time with libraries um, and do money there. So I don't know. The future of books in America is at risk, he said. Bookstore and traffic then, is down. Exactly. That connection right there kind of bugs me. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm kind of saying. Kids aren't as reading as many books. I want to really shine a light and draw attention to the fact this is a tricky time. Um, yeah, I don't know. Again, I'm not going to begrudge him. I'm glad all these bookstores are viable and they're getting a new roof or whatever they're doing. Yeah. It just, it just, it seems a little wonky to think about it in quite Like the whole, t- the tone of it, the tone of it is just weird to me, but the yeah. actual doing of it is like, sure. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, it once, uh, so let's see, in one case, the Bookloft Readers Program at the Bookloft in Great Barrington, Mass, that's we're going to use their grant for 
which sent booksellers to underserved schools to read to the children, donate books to their classrooms. Yeah. And I guess Patterson said he read all the applications, so he knows what they're doing. Like, there's none of, like, bait and switch or, you know, anything about that. Um, that's, it's good. It's good. I mean, I guess it's good on the whole. Um, but the the overall tone just strikes me as, as strange. Um, it reminds me a little bit of what, of what Sherman Alexi did. I think that was also last year, that, like, go work at an indie for a day thing. Yeah, I guess so. But I feel different about that. Tell me why I do. <laughs> why do I feel so much? I thought well, that was cool, but maybe I'm. I did too. Why are we hypocrites? Maybe we are. That's not necessarily. I don't know. Right. I think it. I think it's kind of a weird capitalist thing. In like, uh, authors who go work in an indie bookstore for a day are doing a thing that's good for their careers and is like cold-hearted and like I don't oh, know right, capitalist yeah. as that sounds. Uh-huh. Um, currying favor with independent booksellers is not a bad idea for midless authors. James Patterson does not need that at no, all. Though talk about currying goodwill with booksellers, James yeah. Patterson. <laughs> um, especially someone who's a bit of a enterprise. Like there are some things you could say about James Patterson just as a machine. Like he puts his name on books. He doesn't write. And you yeah. know, like there's, there's some things you could say there. So I don't know. I mean, supporting independent bookstores, I think is on the whole great. Um, I'm not sure if you if your goal is to do what you can to help reading in America and you have a million bucks to spend, I'm not sure this is it. Does that seem fair? Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, I, I mean, I put in my notes, maybe this sh- this would be better used in a library. Yeah. That's just right. exactly how I feel about it. But on the other hand, it's better than anything else you could do with it almost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's right. Okay, so let me do our first sponsor before we get into new news. Um, Swoon Reads is back. Mm-hmm. And Swoon Reads is a new model of publishing that basically what they do is they take, um, they, writers submit full-length YA romance manuscripts to the site. And the site has a whole community of readers who love that genre. They read them, they rate them, they give feedback, they give feedback on ideas to change sequels, they help with cover design, uh, writers can talk to them directly, to their readers, and then they get voted up and they get more and more exposure within the community. And we've talked all about all this before. So if that sounds like something that's interesting to you, that you're into YA romance, I mean, being part of the process from the early stages and really getting deep into that, you should join Swoon Reads and check it out. But one of the things they said they were going to do when they were first sponsoring the show is, you know, if they find something that's great, uh, they're going to publish it. And they did. We've got our first, our first announced book is going to come out in the fall of 2014. And the, the name of the book is, oh, I just lost it. I'm sorry. A Little Something Different by Sandy Hall. And it's coming this fall. And it's, uh, let's see, a, ro- a romance about two college students who don't realize that they are meant to be. And it's told from 14 different viewpoints. Oh, awesome. Which is That's cool. pretty cool, right? Um, Rebecca and I had a stat the other day on the show that like something like 91% of romances are written in the first person and this what you can say is not because uh, there's 14 other right <laughs> 14 other and swoon reads is a, a an endeavor by mcmillan one of the big five publishers no fly by night thing and i i bet they're gonna put a bunch of their marketing muscle and um the behind it so i'm really interested to see what this is going to do um you can go to swoonreads.com it's on the main page right there a little something different it doesn't yet have um a 
cover, I don't believe. Yeah, this is not, the cover's not final because it's just like a bunch of text with a heart on it. That doesn't seem uh, exactly right. It's a hundred about 164 pages, so it's not going to be super long, but you can go and I think you can read the whole excerpt or maybe even the whole manuscript right now um, to go check it out. And it'll be interesting to see how different it was from the original. So congratulations to Sandy Hall of beautiful New Jersey and her efforts on Swoon Reads. So um, that's swoonreads.com. Thank you so much for supporting the show. All right, should we talk more library stuff? Libraries! You know, I always knew librarians were cool, but I didn't <laughs> realize until I got into, like, book internet following news that they really are cool. Like, really cool. They're cooler than we are. Oh, I mean... <laughs> By a way country cool. mile. I mean, yeah, I know. Like, you need exponents to express how much cooler they are than I am, for sure. <laughs> Um, so a couple of uh, librarians in Falls Church, Virginia, Laura Pataki and Carrie Kausch. I'm sorry, Laura and Carrie, for butchering your last names. Um, they set up an area in the library focused on health and fitness, and they put a couple of stationary bikes there. So that's in the kids section, or I guess student section of the library. You can grab a book, and they've got little holders for the book, and you can sit there and uh, do your stationary biking and read right there in the library. Yeah, it's actually in the school library. It's oh, it's in, in high the school, school library. Yeah, it's in oh, Falls Church oh, High School. Oh, Falls Church High School. Okay, I, I for some reason I thought it was in the public library there. Well, that really undermines the point I was going to make about this, Amanda. That's not okay. Oh, no. <laughs> what um, point were you? Well, doing? I was thinking it was going to be in the li- the the public library itself, and it got me thinking how much I wish that um, libraries and community centers would do more stuff like this together that yeah. they didn't do, right? So I wish they would do imaginary things. That, that didn't happen You're allowed here. to wish that. Yeah. But like, why not have um, the community center that has the basketball courts and, you know, the all the other things that go into a regular community center be, maybe have a little branch of the library in there, or maybe they could even be the same building. Um, I don't know. Does that make sense? It just seems like a weird, suddenly it seems to me like a weird distinction that the library is all over here with all the books and everything, and the community center with all the athletics and everything is over there. And this kind of merge, merge got me to think, why not make it just a big hub for the town um, yeah, where you can be- go do all the things there at the same time? And maybe the people that wouldn't necessarily bleed over to the library might you know, have reason to do it because they're there for basketball or squash or whatever. And the people who go to the library and use the library might be reminded that there's all these athletic and other things that the community center can provide. So anyway, that was my point, but it's kind of moot now. Um, <laughs> well, I had um, a member. I used to have a membership at a YMCA that was like that. That oh, had really? A giant library-ish section um, just for people who were there, you know, to work out. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. I'd, I've not seen it. I had never seen it before, and I haven't seen it since. But it was an entire room, like wow, an actual library. Where where was that? Here it was in. Oh, Richmond. is in Richmond? Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Huh. Does it uh, still exist? Do you know as far as far as you know, it's still there? Yeah, it's still there. They do like library sales quarterly. Mm. It's not I, part of like the actual community library. No, no. Yeah, I'm going to have to look that up because I'm interested in that. Um, yeah. But especially as you've written about this um, bookless library in Texas one or one or two times, I think, for the yeah. site. Um, and especially as the physical needs of a library become, I don't know, less important in terms Require of actual space. space yeah, yeah. That maybe this makes even more sense. Like you could have a bookless library terminal or desk or one of those vending machines that we we sling, we um, did a post about a while ago could be right next to the community center um so integrating the library with what's available 
and the rest of the community seems like a super fun idea. And stationary sure that, bikes and that kind of stuff come with big digital displays now, so I feel like yeah, that would for be sure. Easy. Like you could you could duct tape an iPad on there. How hard <laughs> can it be? <laughs> yes, you uh, could. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I'm not sure. Is there much else to say about this particular story except good job librarians? I'm, maybe I mean, good. Is. I was apparently it's doing very well, and that kind of surprised me that high school students were like super excited about reading on a stationary bike. <laughs> well, like I'm super kids these days like the that. multitask. I guess they do. I guess. Uh, Me in high school, I would not have been excited about that. No, but. not at all. Not at all. <laughs> so, um, all right, let's go to where do you want to go next? We got a bunch of stuff. Which one do you want to talk about? Uh, let's do Rowling. Probably no? the big news of the week. All right. It's always it's always Amazon and Rowling. It's you know you can always <laughs> tell what's the new one's going to be. Um, let's see. Well, this one's pretty simple. Um, J.K. Rowling is going to release her next novel in the Cormoran Strike mystery series that she writes under the pseudonym Robert Galbraith. Yay! She just likes to use names that I can't say. The That's weirdest. I, I know, a Galbraith. It, does, it just rolls off the tongue. How did we not know that she was behind the uh, yeah, right. character named Cormoran Strike? Cormoran How did the Strike. internet not pick up on that? <laughs> That's a really excellent point. Like, obviously, this is a J.K. Rowling yeah. situation. Um, so that one is coming out June 24th. And there you go. I'm excited. Yeah, you read The Cuckoo's Calling, right? And you liked it. I remember I did, you saying I this. I did. It was a yeah, it was a really quiet, thoughtful, non-Harry Potter, obviously. There were no magic owls. Mystery. Like, I don't know. It was very Agatha Christie. Yeah, I'm super interested to see what the launch is gonna be like. Me too. Because now that we know who for it the is. last one, it was of course just nothing. Because it was just some non-guy that no one knew. Um but now, are they going to have stickers that says, is the, co- the cover just says Galbraith. It doesn't say Rowling, but are they going to put stickers on it that says, like, also known as, or, like, how are they going to do, is she <laughs> going to do know. publicity for it? Like, I think it's weird. Like, I've never really understood this. I, I've talked about this before, the known pseudonym phenomenon. Like, I understand if, I, I kind of believe her that the original idea is to, like, have this experience of writing a book with no <clears throat> expectation of the brand of JKR. And, but now that that, that genie is out of the bottle, the the dumb show of hey it's not me or it is me just seems very odd but um what do you think about that do you mind or do you don't bother it doesn't bother you at all it doesn't bother me i think it's like a waste of energy but i can (laughs) understand why she would do it like it's a very um over here is where i write my quiet mysteries about a detective with a weird name Mm -hmm. and over here with my jk is where i write whatever else so I don't know. That feels that still feels weird to me. Again, I've never written fiction at all, except for one college class in which I wrote very bad, moody nineteen-year-old <laughs> fiction that shall never see the light of day. Um, in oh. fact, I should. Oh, I want to see it. I should. I should burn the um, stone tablet I wrote it on, because <laughs> um, that's how you get rid of stones. You know, in you burn fire. Them. In fires. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it doesn't matter to me. It just feels, it feels kind of weird. Um, cause she didn't do it for the casual vacancy, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Well, I think the casual vacancy was a very purposeful. I am JK Rowling. Hear me write adult fiction yeah. sort of a situation. Like she really wanted her name on that. And she didn't want it on the mystery thing. And I guess it'll be interesting to see if she writes another adult book. That's not mystery. Will she use her own name again? Um, I think she will. She will. Yeah, okay. Because it's she's known for genre, you know. Yeah, that's true. Uh, what if she were going to write a romance? Would that be a different name? Maybe it would be. Can she do that? She can I do whatever know. she wants. Well, she's I mean, JKR. She can't physically, but I, I've never really gotten a romance vibe from any 
haven't you been following the internet, Ron no, and I Hermione? Know, I, I mean, come on. That's I mean, so many people seem to think that was their favorite part of the Harry Potter universe. So oh, they only think that now because whatever. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, let's no go down that rabbit hole. So rabbit hole. <laughs> I think this will be the big summer release now. I think it, this is the big one. Um, as far as I can tell, I don't know. I'll be interested to see what it does to the sales of Cuckoo's Calling. Yeah, we don't know much about how that performed, because I, I know a lot of people picked it up, but it's probably only going to be a molehill compared to a mountain where everyone is like, rowling, 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 including us, like we're doing it already. Yeah, like right now. <laughs> yeah, like right now. So, um, and But still, still a non-zero percent of people will be like walking through the bookstore or like browsing online and see Robert Galbraith and be like, what? Mm-hmm. So she's still going to lose some sales because her name's not on there, but uh, we're going to be sorry for her because of the money she'll lose from that. I'm sure she's be... like super worried about it. <laughs> I, know. I know since she sold about 1,500 copies and didn't seem bothered by it in the first place. It has place. amusement parks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you have roller coasters um, created after books you've written, I think you're okay for the cash money. You're good. All right. Uh, you want to do the next story? Lead us off. Oh, which one? Well, you pick. Oh, this is your show. This is so your show. So much pressure. All right, I'm going back up. I'm okay, gonna do go. The All right, I'll score. High expectations thing. Okay, so mm. this is a, this is a study. I need Rebecca for this. We one. do. This we'll have to get her take on this next time. Methodology corner yeah. situation happening. Um, so a, this was just a study of uh, Goodreads reviews, essentially, of 64 books that were either shortlisted for big book awards or won the big book awards between 2007 and 2011, and it's it's like a social behavior study? Right, yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, going in, the, the uh, researchers had the expectation that after a book won a big award, it would get more positive reviews because of like the status that comes with big awards. But what they found was actually the opposite of that, that books that won big awards actually garnered more negative reviews after winning. And that's kind of super fascinating. Yeah. Like, um, what's the deal? <laughs> you right. win a Pulitzer and suddenly nobody likes you anymore. Right. I, I think there, I was at first surprised when, I think you linked to this over the weekend um, or something. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And I was, at first I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. But then I thought about Haterade. Yeah, exactly. And this is how Haterade works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get any troll points by kicking um, small unknown objects. You get troll points by kicking objects that are well-known or well-regarded. Um, and so I think there's something to be said for that 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 idea that, you know, those that are inclined to bag on stuff just in general are going to bag on stuff that wins an award after it wins the award because they don't know about it beforehand. So there's that too. Mm-hmm. But I also think there is something to the expectation phenomenon. Like you see something win a Pulitzer or a National Book Award or whatever, you think you're going to love it and it's going to be awesome, which it might be, but it might not always be awesome for you. You know, it just might not fit your particular taste. So that maybe there is some, whatever selection bias went into the people who picked that book before the award was granted, kind of have already picked the book because it's something they're going to like anyway, where the people who read it after the fact are picking it because it follows a criterion that doesn't necessarily line up with their book um, taste. taste. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so this study, and the link is in the show notes, is like super mathy. Um, so they quite... talk about independent variables and some of the effects that they could, medi- mediation analysis and all these kinds of things. So these people pass methodology corner. This is not just some internet poll. No, this uh, is Cornell. <laughs> th- this is Cornell, and it's an academic journal. Um, 
they talk about robustness checks. Uh, Shinsky's going to be out there listening and just really, really enjoying all of this terminology. <laughs> You're going to say robustness check. <laughs> she's just going <laughs> to. Yeah, yeah, I know. She's going to she's going to get flush. Um, <laughs> so I was just going to say at the end, the thing they say about the analysis is basically what I mean, they're much smarter. But um, the idea is. We explain the surprising result focusing on two mechanisms whereby signals of quality that tend to promote adoption can subsequently have a negative impact on evaluation, meaning if you hear a lot about something, that's going to bring out people that want to knock that thing down. Um, the audience evaluation of high-status actor or object tends to shift as a result of public status shock, like an award, increasing the number, but also in diverse tastes. So that means people who don't have that necessarily that same taste are going to be driven towards it by not their taste, but publicity, essentially. Yeah. Um, that also made me think, um, we didn't really talk about it on the show, except I know just last week, the, 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 I wouldn't even call it a study, but the um, post that Hugh Howey did about um, publish, traditionally published books versus self-published books. And he noticed there was a half a star rating difference on Amazon between the self-published book and the traditionally published book. And it seems to me that traditionally published books were in general rated a half star lower than the self-published books. Huh. And I wonder if it's maybe the same phenomenon here could be applied there, um, where traditionally published books get a lot more publicity. They're expected to be a lot better um, because of a variety of reasons, the higher cost, um, the imperture of uh, Random House or Penguin or FSG or Knopf or whatever. Whereas with a self-published book, you come in with really low expectations a lot of times, I think, and the price is low. Um, and you don't get any points for hating something no one's ever heard of. Oh, so that's true. this this might this might be some go towards some way of explaining that difference. Um, Howie was suggesting. Um, I think he suggested that the lower price might have something to do with it. But he was suggesting there's no difference in quality, is what he was saying. And I, I don't know about mm. that. Yeah, no, I don't um, know about that. If we if we do believe, for example, that prize winning books are better on the whole than non prize winning books and short um, shortlisted books then that sort of knocks that argument out of the water as well. I think so. it's interesting that they were using Goodreads reviews. I mean, there's nothing else they could really use to do a study like this, but like mm. just from personal experience of using Goodreads, it's when people review, it isn't always like a an, an objective critical analysis of the text, you know, right. it's, it's an, I liked this or it was boring or this character was annoying. One star, one star, one star, right. um, which is totally legit. And and I do that all the time and that's what Goodreads is there for. Um, but it's not necessarily, yeah. I don't know, like a, yeah. What other data set could you use? I mean, I was going to say I mean, like uh, Amazon. I don't well, know. <laughs> but now they're all together, right? Yeah. Amazon yeah. And Goodreads. I don't know if they're all thrown into the mix. Um, not, I guess you could use star ratings on Barnes and Noble, or it's just not as many. I don't think um, it's very it's very tricky to think of a better way that they could have done it. Um, I think their sample size was big enough to get rid of any like weird. Yeah, variables I like think that. so too. I think that's that's fair. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that most prize winning books are literary fiction. Yeah, but the big selling titles aren't literary fiction. So I wonder right. if that has some phenomenon, too, where people who don't normally read literary fiction, if they are going to try one, they're going to often pick a prize winner. So they really are stepping out of their preferred genre, just in general. That's just what the statistics about book buying say. Mm -hmm. So some of it could be genre bias, too, that this is not the genre they like. Um, yeah, and there's a lot. I mean, literary fiction has, especially prize winning literary fiction, can be especially not genre 
Like right. super not yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right, exactly. So it's not even like I'm going into the suspicious because it's not the, the YA I'm used to reading or whatever, but I'm going into this and on page three, I can tell that this is yeah. not going to be fast moving or um, whatever. So <laughs> just, I'm trying to scroll down. Did you happen to see what prizes they did use? What were the prizes they were looking at? They talked about the man booker. Yeah. Um, uh, that's the only so, one I really saw, I think. Because I don't think they did like the Hugo. Like I'd be yeah. interested to see how that worked. Because that would then control for a sort of cross genre, um, you know, sort of weirdness. Because I don't think a lot of people who read, say, literary fiction, when they see the Hugo Award, they don't do the sort of same thing that they don't cross the stream as in as great as numbers. Um, So that would be interesting to see as well. Like within the genre communities, do you have the same effect? I would guess maybe so, but maybe to a lesser degree. Um, Anyway, that's a really interesting. I don't know. I don't think genres have the same. Um, like I feel like any high school student could have predicted the outcome of this oh, really? okay, study yeah. because like adults, not so much, but in high school where it's cool to hate the thing that everyone loves. Ah, uh, you think you're so smart. This guy's boring. Exactly. You know, right. Yeah. Okay. And, but in genre fiction, I don't necessarily think that the authors who win prizes in, in genre have the same like stoic academic stuffy, mm. the man sort of atmosphere about I them i guess yeah. that literary fiction writers kind so of do then sometimes. maybe then maybe you really would normalize for just seeing if it's the curse of high expectation then instead of just crossing the stream and trolling essentially yeah because <laughs> those sort of stakes would be off the table so there we go we did a little we'd like we 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 just modeled the follow-up study we'd like to see yeah um, so we'll do the link there there's a lot of interesting data that only some of it i can understand so at a, many <laughs> words at a glance let's do some more stats <laughs> Um, and this is also related to, I guess, basically signal boosting. Um, not surprisingly, TV and film adaptations <laughs> boost sales of books, but this is some statistics about sales of Library of America classics when a movie or a TV show is made out of the book. Um, and this one talks about how um, that, and about a 50 increase, a 50% increase in sales for Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs and selected letters fueled by the commemoration of the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. There's a lot of programming out there about the Civil War. Yeah. Um, but why were there a 30% increase in the sales of John Muir's Nature Writings and John Dos Passos USA? So it, it's trying to make sense of what, uh, what they're seeing. So, you know, Ben Stiller did this movie remake of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which now that I say that, boy, no one talked about that movie no. when it came out. Did anyone nope. see that at all? I have no interest in seeing Ben Stiller have yeah, a midlife crisis. Yeah, I thought crisis. actually the movie looked kind of interesting. Um, and so the Library of America's edition of James Thurber, who wrote the short story, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, that tripled the sales of the book, essentially, yeah. after the movie came out. And um, on the road as on well. On the road, up 30%. Uh, Encore broadcast of the American Masters program, James Baldwin, increased the Library of America's collection of Baldwin's essay by 30%. So I, I guess this is one of those things that's not surprising, but it's really interesting to see the some of the numbers. Um, and these are all kind of, I mean, relatively low-profile movie and TV things, right? This is no Divergent. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> uh, this is, these are um, art house, essentially. I don't know if art, Walter Mitty was an art house movie, but it was a small release. Sundance, and these, maybe. And these other things are like PBS documentaries. Well, um, I think there's a, a, an a, a audience crossover between PBS and Library yeah, of America right, purchasers. Yeah. Maybe, a bit. <laughs> it makes you think that um, if you're a publisher, uh, like your Library of America, maybe you should back channel finance like 
some movies based on your books <laughs> just to yeah. just to boost the sales though i'm sure it doesn't really make up for it in, to that degree um let's see these are the best-selling this also the a list of the library of america's best-selling titles which i thought was interesting for 2012 yeah kurt vonnegut number yeah. one yeah mm-hmm. number one and they're starting to release ebooks yeah that's interesting as well the top five uh, library of america selling books for 2012 kurt vonnegut's novels and stories from 1963 1973 um philip k dick collection all three volumes wow uh flannery o'connor the collected works Jack Kerouac, The Road Novels, and Raymond Carver's Collected Stories. Flannery's having a moment. I totally agree. Why? Uh, what? I have no idea where it's coming from, but I feel we, like she's having a moment. I feel like that too. Um, I don't know where I'm getting those signals, but I just <laughs> there's I've heard her name bandied about uh, of late, and I don't know why exactly. Um, all right, well let's move along. Let's move on down the road. Moving on down the road, uh, as they say. Oh, let's do more good feeling stuff. You okay. Found, you, you found this. I did. <laughs> it feels yeah. like someone. It feels like a story someone would create to get people to go aw. Um, I feel like it's exactly. That's literally what happened. Yeah, it's like <laughs> what, what can we do to make people go aw? And what happened um, is that the Animal Rescue League of Berks County, which is, I'm now realizing I don't know what state this is. Um, oh, I don't know. It's cute. Uh... Tufts County. Come on. I'm on their website and they don't say where they, they're... It's Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Um, they are pairing grade school kids. I'm sorry. Grade school through middle school kids. Grades one through eight um, who are able to read at any level and they have them come into their animal shelter and they read to cats. <laughs> Can we just leave it there? Maybe that's all we need to say. <laughs> they're so fuzzy. I want to die. <laughs> So the idea is it gives kids a chance to read out loud with not pressure. No one's there listening to them and judging them and how they're pronouncing or how well they're doing. Um, but also the cats benefit from having human contact and partnership. Um, according to the Animal Rescue League's website, cats find the rhythmic sound of a voice very comforting and soothing. And as you might imagine, these are cats that have been under some duress um, and they're living in not, you know, not the ideal cat quarters. Um, so this is, I don't know, this, this is just a good story. Yeah. This is exactly. a good story. And it, it seems like it started because a staff member of the shelter had her son there with her at work and had him read out loud to practice reading while he was there. Mm. And so all the other staff members noticed how cute it was to have a small child reading to kitty cats. And <laughs> so they made it a thing. It's a thing now. They made it a thing because it was cute. And I'm going to link to them in the show notes and you can see all the pictures of all the kids reading cats. Oh, look, there's one of a cat playing with a little girl's curls. I know. It's like, why? Why is this so cute? We're going to need a moment here uh, (laughs) to recover. Um, So that is the Animal Rescue League. Good job. Good job. I can't decide if our heroes of the week are the book buddies or the stationary bike librarians. What's your vote? Oh, um, I say the cats. Book buddies. You've got to be right. Does I mean... Because small, the bike doesn't children. care. The bike doesn't care. High school students are cute. <laughs> Kitty cats are cute. Grades one through eight in cats. How can that not be the heroes <laughs> of the week? Okay. All right. Let's see. Um, are you going to rap? No, I'm just trying to decide if I, what, what story I want to do. I guess we let's do our next sponsor. Okay. Audible.com. They're back. You know them. I know them. We want to thank Audible for its support of the Book Riot podcast. Audible is a leading provider of downloadable audiobooks. 
We have a special offer just for our listeners coming up. I'm going to tell you about that in just a second. Audible offers more than 150,000 audiobooks covering virtually every genre. If you want to listen to a book, Audible has it. Listen to audiobooks anytime, anywhere, iPhone, Android, iPad, Mac, Kindle, PC, Nook, so on and so forth. If you have something that can play audiobooks, it works with Audible. And here's the cool part. Audible is offering Book Riot listeners a free audiobook along with a 30-day free trial. So you can sign up. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot to take advantage of the special offer. Um, by doing so, you get the chance to check out Audible and their service, but you get to support our show because they know you come from us. I'm like, hey, those guys like Audible. Let's give them more money for the podcast. And that we definitely, definitely like. Um, and we like to do a couple of picks. I have a couple of picks. Um, do you have any picks that you want to do right now? Last time you were on the show, I remember we talked about the Third Reich. The rise and fall of the Third Reich. <laughs> the, okay, yes. The so, rise and fall of the Third Reich. I did not just talk about the Third Reich. That's, yes. that's an important um, distinction. And that is sufficiently long that if you started listening to it while Amanda was on the show last time, you might still be listening to it. I'm still I'm still listening to it. Yeah. I'm um, so sorry. <laughs> so, no, that's, that's totally fine. Um, one that I saw recently that um, apparently B.J. Novak's new book called One More Thing and Other Stories has a bunch of guest celebrity narrators. Oh, nice. Including Mindy Kaling and Jenna Fisher and some other people. So since the stories are, stories are there are all really short, um, you know, they can have someone come in and do a, a little bit of a reading. Um, let's see. I Last time I suggested Monuments Men, I'm still listening to that. Um, I think I also asked for reader recommendation. So I'm going to do a couple of those real quick. So this is from Sammy with two M's and an I. Um, and she suggests Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore by Robin Sloan. She said it was incredibly charming and made a book I may not have been as grossed in if I'd read it traditionally riveting and addictive. Also, the author mentioned in a tweet that there's an extra content in the audiobook not found in the print edition. So if you did like um, Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, and are interested in that extra content, you might check that out. Um, also, she took the recommendation of a friend and picked up the first Margaret Atwood novel available at the library, which happened to be the new novel, Mad Adam. Um, the audiobook had multiple voice actors who were all incredibly skilled at capturing their characters. I love listening to it. Um, I don't know if the other Orcs and Craig novels are also in a similar fashion, but I hope they are. Oh, so, she did it out of order. She did it out of order. She did it out cool. of order. Uh, let's do one more. This is from... Uh, Kit, not our Kit, not Kit Steinkellner, but another Kit who listens to the show. And she gave us awesome, awesome ideas. She recommends Bossy Pants by Tina Fey, which we've talked about on the show before, and Sarah Val, which we've talked about on the show before. But she had a hard time, she said, getting through China, uh, China Mieville's City in the City um, in text, but then she turned around and read it, uh, or listened to it on audio, and it really, really, really helped. Um, so that was an interesting idea that if there's a book you've been trying in print and it's just not working, but you do want to try it and get through it, switch to audio and see if that helps you at all. I find this to be true. Like different That's how books. I got through Moby Dick. Is that right on audio? Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, because all, that, all those details about like whaling and uh, where your eyes and just anatomy. sort of start slipping off the page, that yeah. kind of situation. Yeah. That's definitely really tough. Um, Let's do one more from Lauren. I'm listening to episode 37. Okay, right. Uh, oh, she just finished listening to Transatlantic by Colm McCann, narrated by Geraldine Hughes, and it was great. She really captured the music of McCann's writing style and the emotion behind it. She got choked up while listening to it on public Aww. transportation. So I, that might be a selling point. It might not be a selling point. 
Uh, I'm not really sure. So those are audiobook recommendations. Uh, keep those coming. These are really great. Um, I'm going to use them personally, but we'll also give you a shout on the show. Um, Audible is going to be a sponsor um, off and on for a little while longer at least. Um, and this gives us a good chance to shell, share with the rest of the listeners what you particularly like. Um, we're going to do – it didn't look like a particularly strong week in books this week from what I could tell. But one book I'm seeing a million people talk about and I haven't read um, – is called Grasshopper Jungle, and it's by Andrew Smith. And I know our good friend Liberty really thought it was interesting, um, and some other people did too. And part of what's fascinating is, A, it has a weird electric green cover. It's very eye-catching. Um, that looks like a close-up of um, Kermit the Frog's clavicles. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, and, am I wrong? Show I'm wrong. title! <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not wrong. That's you what it looks wrong. like. And I can barely like make sense out of, I feel like I'm having a stroke when I read the the description. The small town of Ealing, Iowa, Austin's best friend Robbie have accidentally unleashed an unstoppable army, an army of horny, hungry, six foot tall praying mantises that only want to do do things. Um, it's funny. It's intense. It's brave. Grasshopper jungle briefly weaves together everything from testicle dissolving genetically modified corn to the struggles of recession-era small-town America in this groundbreaking coming-of-age stunner. So, there's that. Well, what else can you say about that? I'm looking at the Goodreads reviews yeah. of my of my friends, and mm -hmm. uh, one of them is just the words, holy <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. In, in a good way or a bad way? Can you tell? Uh, well, five stars. Okay, you know. in a good way. A good way, yeah. Yeah, and then Kelly Jensen mm. said, said that uh, sometimes you have to look at a piece of art and appreciate that it's a work of art, even though you dislike pretty much everything about it. Well, that's really compelling. Yeah, actually. so it seems to be like people are shocked and awed yeah, by this um, one. Got starred reviews from Kirkus, from Publishers Weekly, from School Library Journal. Um, I don't know. This this is interesting. It's a YA. It's YA, right? Is that what it, Goodreads calls it? Is Are they calling it YA? Uh, yes. Yeah, Coca it's from apocalyptic. Uh, right. Yeah. It's from Dutton YA, um, the weirdest apocalypse you will ever read. So <laughs> sounds like it. So that's yeah. that's right up the book ride podcast's uh, whatever things go up. That's good in a good way. Um, Grasshopper Jungle by Andrew Smith. Uh, I got. I've got. I, I'm. I'm going to drop a surprise topic on you. Uh oh. Are you ready? I'm ready. John Green. Okay. <laughs> Just briefly, I want to talk about this because I need your opinion. I, okay. No one's written about this, uh, so what I've seen so far. So last night, uh, John Green, the author of The Fault in Our Stars, um, went on a little Twitter rant about... Twilight. It was nominally about Twilight, but it was actually about something else. So let me give you the background. If I get this wrong, would you please correct me? Um, because I haven't, um, I haven't sort of uh, memorized everything that happened. Right. But he was watching the movies, and he, I guess, seemed to enjoy them. He hasn't read the books, as he says. And as he was watching them, or while he was, after he was done watching them, he sort of got on this kick of saying, you know, it's not. A lot of people bag on Twilight for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons they bag on it is that they think the gender stuff is not cool which I think is fair to, to a large degree, um, at least from what I've read. And he was saying that it's, it's unfair that people bag on that for being, you know, maybe bad about gender stuff when they don't bag on Catcher in the Rye or Nicholas Sparks, which I will put a pin in that argument just for a second. Yeah, me too. And then he was saying, isn't it more misogynistic to hate on something people like for being misogynistic than it is to let them like it? Like he got a little lost in the logic and I guess what I'm trying to, to figure out is, is there anything to use 
about what he said, or is it just nonsense? Do you see what I'm getting? I'm trying not to just yeah. bag on him a little bit. Because I think, I, that, I think he came from a good place. Yes, exactly. Honestly, but he went from a good place to the weeds pretty quick. <laughs> well, Twitter, you know. Yeah, <laughs> right. But even on his, I mean, even without other people piling on, I was watching it unfold and I was like, is he really trying to tell people that to call something misogynistic is itself misogynistic in a weird way? Um, I, yeah. I'm not really sure about that. Did you have anything else to add to that? Because I, I think there's a there's a layer of complication there that's worth talking about even beyond the strangeness of him saying it. Um, thoughts, feelings, Amanda, I you have, have so, ma- so yeah. many. Hello. <laughs> uh, well, I think he was initially trying to make a very valid point that things that are traditionally associated with or really well-loved by a community of young women are looked down upon in a way that things that are traditionally loved by communities of men are not. Totally I think fair. that's what he was trying totally to get right. at. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. But he didn't say that. And he, <laughs> he said a bunch of other things <laughs> that didn't make sense. Um, and there was one tweet in particular where I, he said something to the effect of, isn't our disdain uh, for yes. Twilight worse than the misogyny of Twilight? Which, no. The answer right. is, is obviously right. no. Right. Um, but he said that in trying to make this original point, which is true, is, is absolutely true. People yeah. do hate Twilight, I think, more than they really than is necessary because it's a thing that girls like, especially teen girls. And that's, you know, you your teen yeah. girls, whatever. Well, teen girls itself is used as a pejorative a lot of time. Don't yeah. act like a teen girl. This is something teen girls would like, so on and so forth, um, which is completely bad. Like, that's yeah. just a horrible way of thinking about it um, to start with. But the idea that Twilight itself is bad and we hate it because it's bad. I think what I, I think what I, I'm getting at more and more, and it also I was thinking about um, a piece our friend and writer Kit wrote about Amazon the other day uh, about the warehouse conditions and what people do there. Mm-hmm. I think we're I feel like we're in a bit of a mode where if anything has any flaw, we throw out the whole thing. Um, yeah. And some people do that with Twilight. That since there's some weird gender stuff um, going on, that maybe we have to indict the whole thing. Um, Maybe because Amazon does some bad things, we have to boycott Amazon. I'm not saying you shouldn't or, or you should or shouldn't, um, but it's very hard to find anything that's pure and good and all the way through. Maybe except for eight year olds reading to cats. But beyond <laughs> that, um, it's very hard. I think, and, and rightly so. I'm not saying you know shut up and don't critique anything and ever and just you know eat your peas and like it. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just think, acknowledging how hard it is in a complex world where we know more and more about a whole bunch of different things that don't always line up with how we wish the world was, how do we deal with something that we really like, but it has like one really crappy piece? Does that make sense? Yeah. And he made, he actually, he made a really good point about how with works like this that come from women, that the authors themselves, when they're female, tend to get more personal crap than yes. like people will go after Stephanie Meyer and make the gender issues in Twilight Stephanie Meyer's personal problem in a way that right. they won't necessarily do with Nicholas Sparks. Yeah, I don't. You know, I have to admit I don't know enough about Nicholas Sparks and and the stories, um, having actively avoided them uh, <laughs> yeah. as best I could. They're Twilight without the vampires. Is it right? I mean, is with that more, fair? More death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but don't people give Nicholas Sparks a hard time? Like, definitely not as much as Stephanie Meyer, but like people give Philip Roth a really hard time about this stuff, and rightly so. Um, yeah, I think the thing, the problem that I had with John Green's rant was was this right here: was that yes, actually. 
people do give crap to Nicholas Sparks about mm-hmm. the sexism in his books. And Catcher in the Rye gets a lot of criticism yeah. for being misogynistic, but most of it is said by women, so it doesn't get the John Green signal to boost, mm. I guess. Yeah, because I feel like the, the the dominant the dominant sort of feeling of Catcher and Rye uh, Catcher in the Rye right now is boo. Like that's kind of where we are with Catcher in the Rye. Anytime we write about it on the site or mention it anywhere, people are like, yeah, Catcher in the Rye doesn't age well. It's overrated. I hate it now, and it sucks. But like, whether or not that's true or not, like, there's plenty of uh, haters for for Catcher in the Rye as well. Um, but that was it. Was interesting to see someone who normally is very well liked for his feelings about this. Um, also the fact that John Green has a platform to talk about these issues that no one else has. So to some degree, him doing it that way almost proved his point, right? Because a lot of other people talk about sexism and misogyny in books. Um, but it wasn't until John, I mean, we're talking about it right now. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I also like, it's a little Well, people hard. have been talking about this with John Green a lot recently mm. about how, because he's John Green and he's like a conventionally attractive, mildly funny white guy, whatever uh-huh. he says, sort of taken as kind of, you know, like gospel. Um, so, yeah. which I yeah. think makes his kind of weird rant doubly like, <laughs> I also just think it's weird for a guy of any kind to tell people how not to be misogynist. Like, I don't know. Some of it is you don't know, dude. Like we don't. Yeah. Guys just don't get how what women have to go through, and sort of tell women. And a lot. Twilight has as many um, women cr- critics as men critics. I would say. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And does. so to say to a bunch of women, you're being misogynistic. You're, you're sort of fighting misogyny in the wrong way. Feels like mansplaining to me. Maybe that's unfair. I, I just feels like just get out of the way. Like say misogyny is bad and do what you can to fight it, but to like pick apart how other people want to go about dealing with these issues felt, I don't know, patrician in a way that made me super uncomfortable. Well, yeah, it's a little paternalistic, I think. Um, And again, I think he's right about the way that we treat art made by women. And I think he totally meant well, but it's just, you know, as a woman who's been saying these kind of things about Twilight and the gender issues since the book came out, it's like, mm, yeah, but I said that five years ago. Well, like, but he was also <laughs> telling you to shut up a little bit, wasn't yeah. he? I mean, well, he was telling he was telling basically cr- critics of Twilight who were critiquing it based on gender issues, you're being misogynistic for critiquing this thing. That was part of the story. That, I mean, that was part of what he was saying. Yeah. Um, he tried to walk it back to some degree, but I don't know that you really can. Well, he was trying to make a point about how Twilight is essentially about having one true, pure love, and and why do we have to make fun of that, and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, okay, but it's not, you know, like, yeah. but but let me vomit all these gender issues about yeah, that. Yeah, like too. pure love itself is so loaded that like, exactly. come on. I mean, and the I way don't... that it's presented in the book and blah, blah, and you haven't even read the books. And yeah, blah. right, you're seeing so the movies. So to get and... on your platform when you have 2 million Twitter followers and say, criticizing this thing that I haven't read because I just watched this movie and not is only misogynistic. I... Yeah, right. Yeah. It's like, well, no. Like, you're generally an awesome ally of feminism and you have a lot of good points to make in this rant, but like, just stop, please. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. So I thought that was an interesting cultural moment. And I was asking today on Twitter if anyone had written about it. And I got, there was one thing that I saw, which I, that for me, I found as fascinating almost as anything. Because if, I'm I'm sorry, what were you going to say? He engages. Like, so I I feel like if he saw somebody write about that, he would. Smack them down? Well, no, not smack them down, but he would respond, you know, like he would want 
to talk to that person. And I think that intimidates a lot of people. Yeah, I guess Knowing so. that an author is going to respond to their criticism. Because I'm just trying to, I mean, we see people do stuff. I mean, we see other kinds of figures do stuff like this. And there's a million blog posts about like, you know, what's going on. And I was surprised. Maybe they're just going to, maybe I haven't seen them or maybe they're going to take a day or two to pop up. Um, but I was a little surprised that there weren't a bunch of, oh my God, look, did you see what John Green said? Um, but Well, he's such a darling, you know. Like, I guess everybody I, I guess I'm always surprised that he gets more wiggle room and he's got such a good track record of being He gets a pass. He gets a feminist that and plus it was like he had just had some sort of medical procedure and was totally stoned. So I that think was like, odd. I thought giving that was him a pass odd, that he like, had an endoscopy and I guess had been under general yeah. or nitrous. <laughs> like you're just not thinking clearly. <laughs> you don't actually believe that. Yeah, I know. Shush. <laughs> I guess it's true. Like if I had a, if I had a, the platform that he did and I had just had a bunch of NyQuil, who knows what kind yeah. of trouble I'd get myself. In. So there's a reason we don't have the platform that he yeah. does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Because uh, everybody true. loves John Green. All right. Well, I, I'm looking down at the time and that's our show. Woohoo! Didn't that go fast? Jesus always goes so fast. Always does. Always does in the two times I've done it. <laughs> yeah, it does. So, um, so as always, you can find us uh, on iTunes. We can rate the show, the show, uh, re- review the show there. You can find bookriotbookriot.com, Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Pinterest, all those places. You can search for Book Riot and find us. Uh, you know my Twitter handle by now. It's at Reading Ape. Amanda's, you can find hers. She's awesome on Twitter. You should definitely follow her at Dead White Guys. Um, Rebecca uh, will be back next week. Mm-hmm. Well, you can also find Amanda doing critical linking on the weekend, and that's where we get a lot of the stories for the show on bookriot.com. And you can find her almost every day over at foodriot.com, our sister site where we talk about food. Noms. All the time. Just food. <laughs> Just on all the varieties. Of Come food. talk to me about macaroni, baby. <laughs> has, there been a especially, has there been an especially... Um, great post over there recently you want to point out that people can go check out or a couple that you like if you want to if you have never been to food riot before go look for this that's on the site right now oh, I, i'm really on the site with that's that you're now you're me. now you are under the spotlight the pressure's on um, no all right i got i've got it's, good ones. it's a short program and the the german judges are waiting okay well one contributor who i love dan guali who oh man i've never said her name out loud i might be totally saying that wrong oh, well, she, she, she can let us know yeah please let me know yeah <laughs> um she blogs at 10th Kitchen, and she wrote a post called To Hell with Skinny Recipes that oh. I am just loving right now about, and it's all about the the gender issues and the guilt and the body shaming that comes along with the concept of skinny recipes, because, you know, they're always written for women, mm-hmm. and they're actually super unhealthy, and it's just a good, solid, like, feminist rant. Nice. I like and that. And that's, that's my sort of, that's my thing. Um, you had one that I thought was funny. <laughs> uh I think it was today or yesterday about how um, about my you, oven. You tried to do your self-cleaning oven oh. without reading the manual. <laughs> that was so bad. And things didn't go super great. They didn't. Um, we just bought a house. It came with a new oven. I didn't read the manual because the button is there for self-cleaning. It does so seem like if there's just a button to press, that the the, the instructions be will nothing. be just press the button bad it did not you i mean you can read the post but it turned out badly we ended up at a mexican restaurant having tacos because i almost burned my house down (laughs) so (laughs) boo his self-cleaning um so there's recipes there's opinion there's roundups um lots of kitchen fails there's the (laughs) there's the lots of kitchen fails which is what i uh, my favorite part of the site uh the critical linking version of food riot where amanda rounds up interesting stories around food is called morning grind and that's every day at 8 a.m we can check that out 
You can also find Food Ride on Twitter and Facebook and everything else. Good. Great. Good show, Amanda. Thank you so much for being here. And we will hear, listen to, and uh, catch everyone else next week. Bye. (laughs) 